The fact that you can buy a pair of shoes that can provide work for a woman in a developing world, like a dignified living wage, where she can then buy a home and food for her own kid. I mean, that is really powerful. First of all, happy Thanksgiving. Today's guests are Heidi Lindgren and Julie Colombino. So why these two ladies? Today on the podcast, we're exploring sustainable fashion a little bit more. We've done this several times already with Barrett Ward from Able and with Chelsea and Elizabeth from Trades of Hope. But I want to keep teasing out stories where people are giving sustainable work and life to people in the developing world. These amazing friends are not giving charity, they're giving work. So that's why we're tackling this issue again today from an entirely different angle. I speak with Heidi for a few minutes at the beginning of the podcast. She's a model, she's a student at Columbia University, and she lives in New York City, the greatest city in the world. Now, Heidi is not just a model, she's a model that focuses on sustainable and ethical fashion. She is an ambassador for Dume, an ethical fashion company based in Haiti. She's good friends with Julie, the woman you're going to hear me chat with for the rest of the podcast. I caught up with Heidi right before she went to her next class at Columbia. Thanks, Heidi, for giving me those few minutes. In our short time together, Heidi dropped several serious value bombs about why we should put our wallets where our passions are or why we should buy ethical and sustainable clothing. Then I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking with Julie, the founder of Dume. Julie's story is truly fascinating. I found myself paying attention to what she was saying with the focus that I use, maybe when I'm watching a super intense film. She's a firecracker. You're going to hear her passion and strength right from the very beginning of our conversation. I truly can't wait for you to hear these fantastic conversations I had with Heidi and Julie. So without further ado, my name is Nick LaPara. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, and here are my conversations with Heidi Lindgren and Julie Colombino. Let's go. Okay, everybody, before we have our longer conversation today on the podcast, we're going to have a shorter one, but not because she's not awesome enough to get a longer conversation. We just want the two of them to tie together. So on the line, we have Heidi Lindgren. Um, So excited you're here, Heidi. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for taking time out of your school day. So you're at school, uh, (laughs) Columbia, right? Yeah, I'm about to sit down for a psych exam in an hour. (laughs) Oh, well, should you be studying instead of on here with me? It's a good break. It's a good, okay, it's a good. good break, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So as everyone else on this podcast knows, uh, we're going to have a long conversation with Julie, the founder of, let me see if I can get this right, Dume. Is that about right? Yeah, that's pretty dang good. Fantastic. So why don't you explain who this company is and then why you're a part of it and who you are? Why don't you just go for it? Tell me, <laughs> give me the whole thing right now. Okay, yeah. It's kind of the best way for me to explain it, actually, is through sort of my discovery of it, which was in 2014. So I, um, just a little background on me, I've been a model for the past 16 years now and been living in New York for the past 10. And um, I met a girl, now girlfriend of um, mine, on a photo shoot for Macy's and became fast friends. And all of a sudden she said, hey, I'm going to Haiti. You got to come with me. So I was in sort of like a year of yes mode where I was just like saying yes to everything that came my way. And I jumped on a plane with her and went down. We went down to teach English, actually, with a school called English in Mind. 
incredible organization. And what they do is really interesting because um, you teach in the afternoon, but in the morning, they sort of take you around Haiti and show you a lot of the businesses that have developed there in, uh, in Port-au-Prince. And that was how I came across Rebuild Globally. So Rebuild Globally is is what Demain was founded as. It was founded right after the earthquake in 2010 as a way of creating jobs in the community. So I'll let Julie get into all the details of why it got started, but um, they were still Rebuild Globally when I met them, and they were still only manufacturing uh, flip-flops out of the tires that they found on the street. So that was their goal, was to create jobs and um, train artisans to manufacture these sandals out of tires. I fell in love with the concept as soon as I met them. I had never seen a social business before. I was only familiar with, you know, aid in the form of charity as opposed to aid in the form of job creation and dignity. And I just completely fell in love. And for once, my <laughs> my quote unquote modeling skills came in handy. And I said, why don't you let me help you design a better, more fashion forward sandal than just the flip flop, you know, so you can expand your customer base, sell more sandals, create more jobs. So we designed our first sandal together. The artisans and I worked together in, um, 2014 and we designed the Bell Nom, which is now still their best-selling shoe. And they have since gone on to create multiple products, uh, bags, accessories, and other sandals since. So um, also just during that process of me designing with them, they wound up gaining uh, status in Haiti as a, as a for-profit ethical fashion company in Haiti. So, you know, that differentiated between a nonprofit, American nonprofit, and now a Haitian owned and operated business. So I was there when they got the paperwork for it. It had taken like a year to get everything going and everybody was so excited. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that context. So a, a couple questions I have is why create clothes this way? Why create jobs versus, um, for anybody listening, why should they buy these products versus going to H&M and getting something for a lot cheaper or going to Walmart and getting something for a lot cheaper. Yeah. Why is it important to think carefully about who's making our stuff and the impact that it's having? Well, that is a very, very big question. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, in the shortest way of answering it, there, you know, there's a campaign called Who Made My Clothes out there if you do a search for the hashtag. And it basically tries to connect artisan faces to the products that you're buying. Um, because basically when the faces get lost, um, sort of the justification for paying next to nothing, if anything at all, the justification for dangerous living and working conditions, um, you know, it becomes a lot easier for companies to get away with it when consumers don't understand what fast fashion is doing, you know, so while I don't want to call out like specific organizations because, you know, like in H&M, they are making efforts in certain ways to combat that, but that's essentially what's happening is, you know, these low price points are, and, and our, our ease of like, dismissing who made the clothes is contributing to really, really terrible conditions. And our artisans are paid higher than a, a living wage in Haiti. And you can see the results of it because they now have their own businesses. They have health insurance. They have their kids in school, you know? And so it's just, 
everybody talks about the companies holding all the power, but really as consumers, we hold all the power because what we yeah, buy is yeah. what companies are going to put out. So if we demand that companies, you know, take this step and, and put their artisans in there and their workers first, then that's what they'll do. You know, but we have to demand it first. So that's why it's important. No, that's fantastic. Super helpful. And I'm super on board with that as well. So the last question directly for you is, Heidi, why do you give a damn? Why are you taking time and energy out of your life to put into something like this? Like what's driving that? I mean, I just don't understand why else we're here if we're not here to create positive impact in whatever way we're most capable of, you know? And for me, the fashion industry has been an incredible launching pad for so many different things that I've been involved with and has given me access and, you know, to resources and to people and to connections that, um, I feel like if I didn't use them for good, I wouldn't be doing the blessings that I've been given justice. Hot damn. There it is. You heard it. No, I, I completely agree. It's why I'm doing this podcast. It's why I it's why I've spent 20 years in humanitarian philanthropic work all over the world, because we're not here. You and I are not here just to serve ourselves and our little group of people and our little part of the world. Like, yes, that's part of that is important. Like we have these people around us, our little community. But the only way that our world becomes better, that things get better, that we can eradicate some of this like shit that's happening in the world is if we all come together and say, what's my part, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that word you just used, community, is such an interesting thing because, you know, the world is shrinking real fast and yeah. communities that we never used to have any connection to are literally like those people that made the, the, their clothes, like their lives are hanging up in our closets. They are yeah. our community. You know, you might not yeah. ever see them, but they're, they are our community. So, yeah. That's super powerful. Well, Heidi, thank you for the few minutes you spent with us. I'm so excited that we got to talk with you and that we're going to hear from Julie now. What you guys are doing is amazing. Keep on going and let's connect soon. Let's do this again. Thanks, Nick. And I love what you're doing too. Keep rocking. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. <laughs> okay, bye. Hope you all enjoyed my short conversation with Heidi. So much to learn from her. And now here's the longer conversation of our podcast today with Julie Colombino from Dume. Julie Colombino, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm probably more excited to talk to you, but yeah, I'm so excited to hear so much more about what you are doing about Dume, I think I said that right, and then really about how you got to this place, right? And so let's start there. Let's start back at the beginning, if that's cool with you. I would love to hear, go back as far as you want. You can go back to your earliest memories. I'd love to hear about the people, places, and things that made you who you are today. And so talk about experiences, relationships, the things that got you to the point where you had your give a damn moment, where things started to shift in your life, and then ultimately where Dume came from. So go back as far as you want. Give us a lowdown. Well, you know, just about me personally, I was really lucky to grow up in a middle-class family in America and privileged to learn to read and write and to get an education. And I think when I was 18 years old, I was in a community college class where I learned that malnourished women could still breastfeed. And the reason that we were studying this is because we were talking about social corporate responsibility. And when um, a, a baby formula company donated all of their expired baby formula to Africa, 
and hundreds and thousands of babies died because women weren't. Wow. Yeah, they weren't taught to clean the water properly before mixing it with the formula. And um, on that day, I think I vowed to take the gift of the education that I was receiving and this information that I was receiving and to ensure that my sisters all over the world would have access to some to something that I had learned in my life. And so at that point, you know, a hundred years ago when I was 18. Um, yeah. <laughs> like A uh, couple, couple years ago. Yeah, that feels like seriously like a lifetime ago. I didn't know what that meant. But I think that was the catalyst for thinking about the kind of woman I wanted to be in the future. And so, you know, fast forward to January of 2010, this horrific earthquake hits Haiti. And as a trained disaster responder, I feel really called to to respond. And I was good at logistics and I had served during other, other disasters. And so I thought I could offer something to the recovery efforts of Haiti. But what I didn't expect was this life lesson on what disaster response means and what it can mean and what this transition of response and development and interacting with people in poverty situations, what this could really mean. I mean, I can tell you the story. I was, it's been eight years, but you know, it's still hard to talk about because I landed in Port-au-Prince 10 days after the earthquake. And so at this point, you know, the tarmac wasn't even, it was broken. It it wasn't even real anymore, you know, and it just, everything in Port-au-Prince was broken and there was so much death and so much crying and so much pain and so many body parts and things that, you know, you just can't even comprehend um, turned out to be like what life was right then in that moment. I joined a group of volunteers who were going into different tent camps that had manifested themselves. And I was handing out bottles of water and tarps. And this really beautiful Haitian woman comes up to me and she says, And I didn't speak any Creole at the time. And so I had no idea what she said in that moment. But later on that evening, I found out what she said was, hey, white lady, I don't really need any water, but I want a job. Wow. Yeah, I know. You have to let that sink in because that's how I was too. And I was Seriously. like, what? Literally disaster, hunger, you know, these horrible diseases, death is all around us. And this woman has so much insight and knowledge and, and just future, like forward thinking that she wants a job. And, um, it blew my mind. And at that, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't even know what to do with that, but I did what I think a lot of people do when they're faced with these like really hard decisions and hard things to do. You go back into like all the moments that make up your life. And, um, I was thinking about all the things that I've learned in my life. And I had remembered that four years earlier, I was, um, in Africa on a bus and, um, the bus broke down and uh, we were sitting outside waiting for the bus to get fixed. And I saw two men making and selling sandals out of tires that they found on the street. And I never thought about those two men ever again since I, you know, since when I'd seen them that day, here I was in Haiti and there's tires everywhere because, you know, there was no waste management system after the earthquake. And even before the earthquake, it was a a real challenge for the country, which is most countries that, you know, suffer from poverty. Um, Waste management isn't usually on the top of the government's list. So you'll see burning trash and tires and all these types of things all over the place. You had people who were 
shoeless, obviously, because you lost everything um, after the earthquake. And then I had this woman who asked for a job and it kind of all came together. And I thought, my God, could we just make sandals out of tires here in Haiti? And, you know, that's what we decided to do. So it took about eight months. Um, It wasn't until August 14th, 2010, that I opened up a little job training center in the middle of Port-au-Prince. It was nothing more than a lean-to and a tarp and me and three Haitian colleagues sitting on the floor cutting out tires with razor blades, you know, after watching YouTube videos on how to make sandals from tires and starting this little small enterprise to try to, you know, get back some of what the earthquake stole, some of dignity, some of uh, income. You know, I had at that point, I didn't have a penny left either. I mean, nobody had anything. And we wanted to to do things differently. We didn't want to stand in rice lines. We didn't want to be the recipients of bottles of water being handed out. And so we decided to do something about it. So that's kind of the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like I need a drink after that um, and <laughs> not water. Like <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. No, some hard but beautiful insights and truths in that story, you know, I think there is definitely a, and we've seen this very visibly in the last few months and weeks, even with, you know, recent hurricanes and tragedies is that there is a time and a place for charity. There's a time and a place to buck up and bring together resources and food and drink and all that stuff because people need that stuff. Right. But that has its place. But I think we spend, and I, and I'm, I'm speaking from very much, you know, a lot of experience here, 21 years in humanitarian and philanthropic work, literally when I was 13 was my first, you know, venture into this, uh, you know, volunteering, taking care of kids at a, a terminal cancer hospital in Guatemala City when I lived there. And I've seen so many things done well and so many things done poorly in the humanitarian, philanthropic, you know, charity space. And you're bringing up something that I've seen over and over again, which is that people, they don't want handouts. You know, in Zambia, I've been to Zambia, spent weeks there helping them out, charity work, right? And they don't need somebody to paint their walls again. They don't need someone to, you know, cook them meals. They don't need someone to do all these things that make us feel good. And, you know, we can post pictures to, you know, we can post pictures to Instagram and Facebook and it makes us feel good. And, you know, grandma who supported us on this trip feels good because we, we went over there and did this thing. But... The people want to work. They don't just want to survive. They want to thrive. And it's so, like you said, in the midst of this disaster, it's so like just mind-blowing that she had the capacity to look even past the disaster and say, yeah, that's cool that you're giving us water, but that's not what we need. We need jobs. We need our lives back. Um, Help us do that. And what's also interesting, my last insight from your story is that you, which is why we're on the, you know, a call today and why... I'm so intrigued by your story and excited to, you know, pull more details out and to share it is that you could have, well, honestly, you could have not even cared what she said and just handed her a bottle of water. Right. And then it could have been done right there, which is what a lot of people would do is like, nope, handing the water out, got to get more water out, got to get more food out. But you took the steps to find out what she said and what she meant. And then you put yourself in a position to be impacted by that. And then you did, again, what I think a lot of people fail to do, which is why I created this platform and want to see more people do these things, is you gave a damn about it. You said, what can I do? What can we do to create change here? So really crazy story. And what's also uh, interesting is that during that earthquake, I wanted so badly, I almost, like I was literally... um, 
And I'm glad there were both kinds of people, the yous and the me's in, in that situation, because not all of us could go over there. I was I was moments away from booking a ticket, and I had an organization that I could have gone with. And what I decided to do instead was do something that I was good at, which was events and music tours. And we put on a big hip hop show, raised 25 grand. And I think that was, you know, probably the best use of my, because there were probably, as you probably saw uh, firsthand, there were so many people over there. I don't know, maybe there, we you could have used more, but I'm sure the $25,000 was put to better use than me going over there and handing more bottles of water out when what they really want is their lives back and jobs and, you know, they want to thrive in that environment. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that. So, incredible story. How about let's move from there to what happened next? Like, how did you go from, you said, just a lean-to and a few people cutting out designs for, you know tire treaded sandals. <laughs> How did you get from there to today? Like, let's fill in those gaps now. Okay, cool. Well, I'll tell you from what you just said, you know, we kind of build our culture and our values on that philosophy that everyone matters, right? And everyone's important and everybody can create value in their own way. So whether it's put on a music concert, which by the way is super cool, and I'd love to hear more about that, um, to you know, living in a tent and, and building this company or whatever it is, we, we're all important. And I think that the next few years of our story goes to show how different people have an impact have impacted us. So so we did, you know, make these really like horrible, uncomfortable, ugly tire sandals. And we, <laughs> they were like ridiculous. And, and I'll, maybe I'll like send you a picture of the original pair, but like, yeah, they were kind of crazy. But the thing that was, that was even more crazy was not how ugly this, this product is that we were making was that people were buying them. And I don't know if it was because it was a novelty or that people were just, you know, cause we had relief workers and UN workers and Haitian people and people just, you know, like the fact that somebody's doing something other than handing out bottles of water. So I don't know if that was the reason why, but whatever it was, it triggered this idea that, my God, we're not just a charity. We're something different. And to give you, I'm um, sorry to go back a little bit. I have a master's in nonprofit management and I've always worked for different charities in my life. And um, it's something that I'm comfortable doing, working with charities. But when we started doing these business transactions of selling uh, ugly, uncomfortable sandal, like no matter what the product we were giving something and getting money in return. I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is not just a charity. This is something different. And I didn't know what that meant. And so we kind of just carried on. And every couple of weeks, my business partner, Jolena, who you'll hear me talk a lot about because she's um, she's everything. Um, she's an, this amazing woman who, who I've built the company with since day one she kept bringing in new friends to like volunteer. And I'm saying that with like making air quotations. Cause she'd be like, Oh, this is my friend. Like she's going to volunteer. And I'm like, mm, I don't know, Joe, because like we pay, we paid people to work. Right. Like, because you know, that's like what we were doing. And I was like, so I never felt good about a volunteer. So we just kind of kept adding people to this team. And I'm telling you, it was really scary because money was running out so, so quickly. And so we just kind of relied on different people who were coming through Haiti because like you mentioned, there were thousands and thousands of people coming through all the time. And, you know, one time this guy comes by and he says, Hey, have you ever used a Sawzall or thought about using a Sawzall versus razor blades to cut tires? And I was like, what the hell's a Sawzall? 
<laughs> a month later, the guy comes back and he brings me a sawzall, and which is this amazing electrical tool that cuts tires much more efficiently than razor blades. But we didn't have any source of power. So he then, a month later, bought us a generator, like this little tiny generator. And it, it kind of like started transforming things. And like, you know, other people would come and say, oh, you know, this really hurt my foot or this, this, you know, would be really cool. And slowly but surely, we were actually learning to become craftsmen. And then one day I was downtown and I met an actual shoemaker because Haiti is full of incredibly talented cobblers and artists and craftspeople. And because I didn't know the country well enough, I was ignorant to all that she had to offer and all these resources of this beautiful country. And so I met this really awesome shoemaker who was horrified with the fact that I was using tires as the soles of, of shoes because he thought that was like race to the industry. And I was like, well, listen, man, like I got seven ladies over here. We don't know what the hell we're doing. And if you'll teach us to make shoes, I'll pay you. <laughs> so he, you know, a few months later, he had become like our head shoe designer and, you know, a trainer and this kind of amazing thing. And so like people just kept coming into the organization and about 2013, we transitioned from a charity from rebuild globally to a for-profit Haitian-owned and operated business, Deme. Um, Deme means two hands in French and Creole. And we wanted to build this company that not only valued what we were making with our own two hands, but with other people around the world were doing when they purchased these products, you know, just like showing like the power of everybody. And it took us about two years to register that business in Haiti because, you know, to be completely transparent, doing business in that country isn't, isn't that easy. There was a lot of hoops to jump through and uh, a lot of different things. And also people did not want me to co-own with my Haitian employees. It was not something that people knew about, like this employee ownership type thing. It wasn't something that was commonly practiced. So it took even longer, but we won in the end. And our official day was, um, you know, we say January 1st, 2015 was the first day that Dume came into operation. And after that time, we got a visit from Kenneth Cole, who's, um, I'm sure everybody knows, a fashion designer and philanthropist in New York. And Kenneth, you know, had been helping Haiti since the earthquake, as well as many celebrities and philanthropists were doing. And Kenneth thought the best way he could make an impact was to open a Kenneth Cole store up in Pitchinville, which is a very wealthy area of Haiti. And so he was in Haiti to launch that store. And somebody had said to him, hey, have you heard of this little company down, down by the airport? They, they make shoes there. And so I got a call Friday night. They said, oh, Kenneth Cole wants to come to your factory tomorrow. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, awesome. And they're like, will you be there? And I was like, I will not. I was actually in the United States because I had malaria at the time. But my team, my incredible team in Haiti were there and they received Kenneth. And he, I guess from the story goes that he really grilled them about the business practices. Well, why is your company never shut down? Because, you know, all these problems with the port and this and that. And we explained to him that 100% of our materials are sourced locally in Haiti. So we don't have to deal with anything at the port or we don't have to deal with any of those problems. We explained that this is not a co-op or a pay by the piece, that this is a place where people get dignified living wage work, where we pay taxes to the Haitian government. We pay employee taxes. We pay property taxes. We pay sales taxes. We are part of building the economy of Haiti. And therefore we don't have a lot of, we don't have problems. We just do business. So Kenneth said, I'd like to design a flip-flop that I can sell in my store in Petchenville in Haiti. And so they called me and they're like, 
you know, Kenneth Cole wants to do this. Can he? And I'm like, Kenneth Cole can do whatever the hell he wants. He's right. Kenneth- <laughs> so, and so he did. He designed this collection called the Love Haiti Collection. And I really thought about it. And I thought, you know, Kenneth Cole has so much more power and reach than Haiti. So I flew up to New York the following week with one of my team members, came in from Haiti, brought all the prototypes. And we said, okay, we want to sell these all over the world and every Kenneth Cole store in the world, you know? And he was like, well, this is what I can do. I can put them in six different stores and I can sell them online. And he did. And that was a huge gift for us, you know, to have this exposure, to have this guy who's been making some of the best shoes in the world for the last 20 years to validate our little tiny brand and say, you know what, I'm going to take this one label and I'm going to manufacture it in Haiti and I am going to be a part of the change, of the sustainable change. And because Kenneth did that, I think other people started to look at us. And he did more than that too. I'll maybe totally honest with you. He, you know, he taught us how to use leather better. He taught us about the equipment that we needed to invest in. He spent time and his team spent time showing us how to be more appropriate business people. Um, you know, cause none of us, no, nobody on our leadership team had any business experience. So they were willing to teach us and to grow with us. And it, it's been a huge part of, of our, you know, current success. So we just learned every day how to do things better. And I'll tell you, it's a, it's a painfully slow process, but I think if you're willing to grow and to learn and to be humble enough to acknowledge when you're not great at something, people will come in to fill those gaps and, And that's what we just keep finding. And I know you spoke to Heidi later and, you know, later, right after Kenneth Cole came through, you know, this amazing woman, Heidi Lindgren, who's one of our brand ambassadors and board members of our charity side, you know, she came in and and said something very similar. You know, she said, I love what this company is doing, but, you know, Julie, I want to be totally honest. I wouldn't really wear these flip-flops. It's not something I'd walk around New York City to a model fashion shoe on wearing, you know, these generic looking flip-flops. And so Heidi took her own time, own money to come and live in Haiti with us in our extremely humble accommodations. I'll just put that out there and sat in that social impact factory every single day, designing the highest selling, like the biggest selling sandal that we have to this very day, the Belnam sandal. And she designed that sandal with our craftsmen and women. And ever since that, she's been helping to design products and to make sure that we're really reaching the uh, marketplace of things that people want to buy, not just buy because they feel bad for us, because we're not a charity. We don't need people to feel bad for us. We need people to desire these ethically made products. And now it's not just flip-flops, it's handbags and accessories and jewelry and you know all these different things. And we're trying to create an entire brand of things that people want to buy because they're statement pieces, because they're awesome, because they're conversation starters, because they're beautiful, because they enhance the inner and outer beauty of our customers. And it supports sustainable business. I mean, right. any better than that? I think that. Yeah. No, no, no. No, for sure. That's incredible. So when you guys transitioned from being a nonprofit to a for-profit in January 1, 2015, what were some of the impacts of, like, were there any naysayers uh, now that you weren't a nonprofit anymore? What have been some of the the ups and downs? Maybe it's been all ups of doing that, you know, going through that process. You ask really good questions because there was a lot of, of naysayers. And, I, and I'm sorry, right. I need to clarify. We actually have a hybrid model. So we do have, we still have the charity rebuild globally and we have the for-profit business. And I'll tell you why. The, the charity um, continues to exist and thank God it does because we fundraise through the generous donations of people and grants and foundations to provide 
education for some of the most vulnerable youth in our neighborhood, as well as an entrepreneurial center, um, Saturday classes, teaching entrepreneurial skills to vulnerable kids in the neighborhood, and a job training program so that we can build a workforce so that Dume has actual trained a trained workforce. And so our charity continues to do that and really help help with some of the other things when hurricanes happen, you know, so the charity is still able to respond to the fact that we are situated in a um, developing country. And so the charity still works at that, but making the decision to open a for-profit business and to move all of that into a for-profit business. Yeah. My nonprofit board, um, our charity is a U.S. nonprofit. The first thing that, you know, people said was, wait a minute, the reason you're a nonprofit is because you don't pay taxes and you become a business, you're going to have to pay all these taxes. And let me tell you something. We pay a lot of taxes in Haiti because it's a very European type system. And I said, but do you know what? If I want the road built between my house and my company, I better damn well pay my taxes. It is not a charity's responsibility to build schools and to build roads and to ensure that we don't get completely blasted during a hurricane. That is the government's responsibility. But how can that government operate when there's charity after charity after charity in there doing those jobs already and not contributing to the bottom line? It's impossible to talk about development when you don't want to participate in paying taxes. You know, nobody likes paying taxes. I mean, like, let's not be crazy here. But if we believe, if we truly believe that people deserve roads, that children deserve schools, that, you know, that people, um, you know, should have access to all the stoplights, to all of these beautiful conveniences that we have that allow the United States to, to be such a wonderful place to live in, then don't people all over the world deserve that? And are our charities and nonprofits actually hurting that? without knowing it. And so that's why it's so important to talk about it because I don't think anybody would do this out of malice. It's just we don't know differently because this is how people have conducted charities before us. And so this whole new idea of social enterprise and social business, I think is really just so people could have a conversation about what we've been doing in the past and the possibilities of how we could do it differently. And, you know, it also, it protects us. It makes us safe. It makes us a partner to the Haitian government, to the Haitian community. Um, you know, I think that being a business and, and doing business that, and that again is not temporary. Nobody starts a company and hopes to leave in three years. Well, most charities want to go into a disaster zone or a poor country and they want to, they always say they work themselves out of a job, right? Cause that's, that's what charities are supposed to do. But business is supposed to sustain. And I want to, I want something that lasts and only a business could do that. Man, that's spot on. I, you're hitting on so many things that I love and live for. And um, I'm so excited that you're there doing that. So let's, let's talk numbers for a minute, just so that we can kind of get, yeah, a better idea of what's truly going on. Like, let's talk numbers, not like financial numbers, but people. So how many, how many people are involved in this? Like, it's not just you know, whatever number you throw out for people that work with you and for you, the artisans, like there are countless people behind them, right, that are being directly affected by them getting a, an above living wage in a place like Haiti, right? There's kids, there's aunts, there's uncles, there's grandparents, there's husbands, there's wives. There's so many people's lives that are enriched 
because you decided a few things. You decided to start this thing. You decided to embrace this, you know, this this give a damn moment. And you decided to then, you know, two years ago, go from a, uh, a charity to a for-profit business model. So let's talk numbers for a second. What What's going on here? How many people are being affected and helped by Dume? Sure. So we moved from that tarp and, and lean to um, into a, so we call it a social impact factory, and it's really made out of three old shipping containers. And today in our Port-au-Prince social impact factory, we have 30 Haitian employees. Four of them are managers of the company. So we have a, a director of sales who is my business partner, Jolina. Um, Jean Robert, who's also my business partner, he is the director of quality control. Irony, who's our master shoemaker. And um, Brunel is our liaison Um and one of the leadership team, like I said, owns shares in the company with me. Um, and then we have, you know, about 25 craftspeople who are working every day in that factory. Last year, we partnered with the United Nations to open up a second training center in a refugee camp on the Haitian-Dominican border. Oh, and, cool. Yeah. And this this was a really eye-opening experience, you know, um, immigration and refugees and all that. It's a, it's a hot topic around the world. And- I think if we always approach this conversation with compassion, <laughs> both sides of however you feel about these particular crises happening right now could be enlightened by the plight of a refugee, someone who has been violently usually torn from their family and home, thrown across a border without most of the time speaking the language, having any type of family support. Um, this was something I learned that there are loan sharks that are just hawking all over the border that, that, you know, attack these people and, you know, trap them into these horrific loans and these situations because, you know, there will be a child whose arm was dislocated because he was pulled so harshly across the border. And so a desperate mother, of course, she'll take a loan from a loan shark to get him some kind of medical help. These people are prisoners because they are stateless. At any point, any person, any any police officer from any side could detain them. I mean, the life is it's it's so unjust. And if we, if we as a human society, you know, could ever try to put ourselves in the shoes of refugees, I think that we would find that sleeping at night would be difficult if we didn't do something about this. And I'll tell you, when my Haitian team first told me about how, how horrible it was, um, I, I, you know, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I said to them, don't get involved. And I'd said that because I was so selfishly absorbed with our numbers, our financial numbers, like how much we weren't selling, how, you know, were we getting in debt? I'd never run a business before. I was, I was drowning in my own, you know, business nightmare. And so Jolina and um, another colleague, Sarah said, they say to me, well, okay, we're not, we're not getting like the company involved, but we're going to bring out like any, any like old model sandals and we're going to bring out some water filters and some mangoes out to the border because like, it's a horrible tragedy. And I was like, okay. I was like, yeah, you guys do what you have to do. And I just kept saying, I don't want to get involved. And, um, a few weeks later, uh, Sarah sends me a video in the refugee camp at Fonbayard, the refugee camp where we're working. And six hours later, I got on a plane and flew to Haiti because it was so horrible. And I knew we had to do something. And so we met with the the members of that community, the leadership there, and told them about what we do. And they said, well, we want to make shoes too. So we we started putting it out there that we wanted to open up a second factory in this refugee camp. And um, we were really grateful to receive some funding from the United Nations. 
And we did. We opened up a second factory. It's a huge trailer that's right there in the middle of the camp. And we trained 34 refugee men and women to make the soles of the sandals and to make all of our inner tube pieces for our manufacturing of other products. And uh, I wish I could tell you that that was as healthy of a business as our operation in Port-au-Prince. But what we found was that a lot of those people needed a lot more training than the business could provide. So now we um, we went back, Rebuild Globally. Our charity side is back out there, and we are um, conducting a nine-month training program to get those folks ready for the workforce. And you know the, the thing about it is, Nick, is that we knew this before we started it, but we were reacting so quickly to the desperate situation, and we wanted so desperately to get some income into that community. And you know what? It is completely transformed it. I mean, I had a, a friend go out there a few weeks ago, and she was like, you know, this isn't a refugee camp. This is a community. And she's right. Everybody, um, because of the the income that went into that community, because of the business, moved out of the tents. Um, people own chickens and goats, and they built a school, and they have a well, and they finished a church. And so all these things happened because of the dollars, the actual dollars that were then infused community because of work. But we had to take another bite of that humble pie and just say, dang, you know, we didn't train them well enough and they need more training. So that's okay. We will never abandon them. We'll, we'll continue to work until they're fully trained. And that's why the sales of our products mean everything, you know, in order to keep another 34 people employed, we had to, we had to increase sales 400%. You know, that's a, that's a big percentage have to increase. And so I will shamelessly use this opportunity of being on your podcast to encourage anybody, you know, absolutely wants to buy Dumay, who wants to buy Christmas presents or holiday gifts or birthday presents, or just, they want to just have a really beautiful handbag made out of genuine leather source in Haiti, you know, combined with inner tube and tire to help us, um, you know, see this vision come to fruition and increase our sales and to be champions of the brand by buying our products. But so to go back to the numbers, we have 34 people on that training program at the refugee camp, and we have 30, 30 Haitian employees at Dumay. We also employ six Haitians um, for Rebuild Globally to run all of our education and job training programs. And we have a staff of four, um, four foreigners. Yeah. And so we have a Turkish, a Brazilian, and two Americans that work both in Haiti and a, and a Belgian. Sorry. So there's five of five foreigners working in Haiti and in the United States to make all of this happen. So both for Rebo Globally and Domey, you know, it takes a lot of people. We love our, our diversity too, because I think it takes having all these different people with all these different perspectives that helps drive the innovation. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Gosh, I have a million things that I want to ask you, but we only have a few minutes left. We'll do part two for sure. So Julie, this is a very simple question, but it's loaded, I'm sure. Why do you do this? Like, why are you doing this? Why do you give a damn in this way? It would be much like I can feel your energy through, you know, literally through my ears and through the microphone. And like, I think I assume there are probably a million other things you could be doing, probably for a lot more money. And there are many other paths you could have taken and you stuck with this one. I mean, why? Like, what's driving that? Well, I mean, Nick, I love my life. I love the family that I was able to build in Haiti, the the company and the culture that we that I get to be a part of every day. And I would be lying if I didn't tell you that there's more lows than there are highs because there's so many lows and there's so many challenges. And But every time we defeat, even if we just partially defeat one of those challenges, I feel like it matters that I'm breathing. And I love that feeling. I love being a part of something that I know is, is going to surpass my life. 
you know, Dume does never, doesn't live or die with me. It's its own thing. And I feel really grateful to be a part of that. And so, you know, my, like I always said, my business partner, Jolina always says, oh, you know, if Julie came to Haiti and gave me oil and rice, it'd be gone, but she created a job for me. And I always have to say to her, Jolina, I also have a job here. So you created a job for me. Yeah. You know, it's this coexistence of like building something that you want to live in and be a part of something that you live in. And I also love every single one of my team members. And so it's fun to go to work. It's, and it's the sad and hard things that we have to deal with every day. We are there for each other. And I don't know, I don't know if I could have that anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Everyone listening to this conversation right now, they're here. I mean, probably partially because they want to hear a good story and they want to be inspired, but I, I hope, and I think I'm, I'm right because I hear people, you know, contact me all the time they want to give a damn. They do give a damn. They're somewhere in this process of giving a damn. And and they want to do something meaningful with their lives. They want to get off their asses and stop watching as much Netflix. And they want to, you know, stop making excuses. And they want to do. They want to do. Whether it's whether that do and, and do means a lot of different things, right? It's helping the homeless person that you always pass on the way to work. It's being there for your neighbors. It's uh, taking care of your community better. And then it's starting, you know, companies overseas. And it's getting on a plane and going to disaster areas. So it's it's everything, right? But they want to do something. So what would you give us based on your experiences, your life, the things you've learned? What are two or three things that we can take to heart right now, things that you think that people can act on right away? Just give us some advice, some things that we can really you know, go after here immediately. Okay. Well, you, you said the first one, it was do something. So I remember, especially right after the earthquake, I was really paralyzed by the disaster. I, you know, even though I'm like a trained response worker, like I, I was very paralyzed. And I remember someone saying, to, and I was like, I don't know what I should do. And they're like, do something. Because if you allow yourself to stay paralyzed and to stay comfortable or to, to, you know, you're so afraid to make a mistake, nothing will ever change. And then to, you know, to carry on with that thought is learn from your mistakes. So in the process of doing things, um, I've heard a lot of people, you know, and I have to live with the nightmare of not being able to to help in a way that I wanted to, or you know, you know, almost using somebody to have to learn something, and that's a really, really hard way to live. But what I promised myself is that would never happen twice, and it hasn't in eight years. Every mistake I have made, I have learned from it, and someone else, you know, usually it's myself, um, you know, will, will be better for it. And usually it's, you know, the next person who will be in a very similar situation. And so we always learn to do better. You know, what Jolina taught me is you persevere, like no matter how bad it gets, like in perseverance, it can't just be like a buzzword and it can't just be, you know, something that people talk about. It has to be, you have to swallow it and own it and never give up. And the only way you'll be successful in that, in my personal opinion, is to surround yourself with great people and a great team. Like, you know, I'm honored to have the opportunity to be the spokesperson today with you, Nick, um, for our company, but it is only because I have the most incredible people who allow us all to do this, you know? So it's, it's never one person. It's never an entrepreneur. It's all the people. And so surrounding yourself by that type of greatness and people who believe in you, I would say, you know, we're really powerful. Each human, each choice, each day, 
we really are very, very powerful. You know, I don't want to like take over the conversation by trying to say this again, but I will say, I mean, the fact that you can buy a pair of shoes that can provide work for a woman in a developing world, like a dignified living wage where she can then buy a home and food for her own kid. I mean, that is really powerful. Or you can choose to buy a $6 pair of plastic flip-flops that hurt the environment that were made um, at a sweatshop possibly. I mean, who knows? Like, But that simple choice of what you put on your body or in your body, that we all wear clothes and shoes every day. We all eat every day. And so that means every single day, multiple times a day, we have a choice to do something very powerful that affects hundreds of people, essentially. you know. And I think understanding that, owning that, and doing something about it right every single day. And you know what? If you make a mistake, that's okay. You got the next day. Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. That's some good stuff. That is such good stuff. So much I want to talk about. I think we should. We're definitely going to do a round two. I really think so. Because I, I think we have a lot to learn from you. But for the sake of time, here's what I want to do. I, I want to say something to you. And then I'll ask one kind of closing question. That last question is always the same for everybody. It's one of my favorite questions to ask. I ask it on the podcast. I ask people all the time because I'm really intrigued uh, to the answer. So the first thing, I'm going to say something to you. The thing I'm going to say to you is, uh, like, I want to spend just a moment honoring you. There's always a tension on these podcasts because on the one hand, what I'm trying to do is to normalize giving a damn, right? I want everybody to know that you're not a superstar. You're not, you don't have some magical power. Like you just did it, right? You like fucking just did it instead of talking about it in a sense. Like you're not a superhero. On the other hand, you did do it though. Right. And so there's always this tension when I'm like, I'm trying not to like elevate you and so many other guests, but at the same time, I want to shout your praises from the rooftops and just say like, Hey, everybody, like Julie did it. Like she, she stopped making excuses. She saw a need and she gave a damn about it. And so really briefly, like I want to honor what you're doing. What you're doing is so powerful. You've directly created work for dozens of people that need it. Right. And it's, and that is directly affecting so many people, their children, their spouses, their partners, their aunts, uncles, the grandparents, their neighbors, you're making Haiti a much better place. And on top of that, you're providing great products and things for people to buy all over the world where they can, like you just stated a few seconds ago, they can directly uh, impact these uh, amazing people in Haiti that are still to this day recovering from tragedies that have happened in their in their country. Um, so keep going. I love what you're doing. I'm so excited about what you're doing. And like, I want to, yeah, at the same time normalize it. I also want to, yeah, just really honor the fact that you did answer a call that so many ignore to spend a large portion or in all of your life, yeah, serving these people, loving them and creating this really cool company. So I hope you feel honored and I hope that you, you know, continue to find strength through through this podcast, through the people that are listening and through many other ways, like find the strength to keep going. Thank you, Nick. I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate your deep desire to normalize this because you're right. And this could be anybody you're talking to. And and I really appreciate everybody who's listening because they're probably doing something very similar and or want to be and, and are willing to do it. They'll be the ones doing it. And so I just um I'm thankful to be introduced to this new community and to, you know, to have more people because nobody does anything alone. We're stronger together. So I'm grateful to to know you. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are better and stronger together. So last question. 
starts off with a statement. The statement is one day you're going to die. Hopefully it's many, 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 many years from now, but you're going to die. We all are. That's the one, that's one of the few things that each one of us have in common is that our lives will come to an end. And the hypothetical part to this question is that someday I'm going to give your eulogy. Uh, for some reason, I've been chosen and all of your, the people that you've employed over the years and all of your family and your friends and everybody's there, there's thousands of people and they've gathered to both celebrate your life and mourn, you know, your passing. And again, I get to be up there hypothetically giving your eulogy, kind of celebrating your life in front of everyone. Honor. <laughs> oh, well, th- well, th- well, thank you. I'm sure there are many more qualified people to do it, but um, I'll take this time to do it, uh, you know, hypothetically. I, I talk about legacy all the time. I talk about death all the time because it's, I think that the most successful people do, right? They think about their legacy. They think about not just about what happens on this earth, but what kind of a, an impact they're going to leave once they leave because the impact lasts way longer than the years we spent on this earth, right? Like we could be here 80, 100, 150 years if they can figure out how to make us live longer, which they will. Um, but but the reality is I want my legacy to last thousands of years. Like I want the impact of what I do to last thousands. And so on that day, what do you hope that your legacy will be? What do you hope that my eulogy over your life will be? Wow. Um you know, I, I would really hope that even after I die, that my family and friends and team will feel my love for them, my very, very deep and sincere love and my sincere gratitude for living such a rich life because I was able to learn from each person who was in it. People come in and out of your life, of all of, all of our lives, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. And I've had both, as all humans do. But from each interaction, especially as I've gotten older, I tried to learn from them. And I hope that, um, you know, maybe I could also leave a little teaching um, to them. But I would I would just hope that as you were speaking about my life, that they would continue to feel incredible gratitude and love um, because that's how I feel every moment of every day in my life is joyful in the midst of all of our, you know, hard work and tragedies that we've come through because of the people in my life. Mm, Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I think if you keep on the track you're going on, that will be what is said for sure. And I I think, I think you're, I mean, you've already had such a great impact. um, So I love that. Okay. Before we finish, what do you want people to go look for when they go, you know, they're going to go look you up online after what what are you online? Where can they find uh, do my stuff and uh, all of that? Thank you so much for asking. Okay, so there's all different kinds of people in this world, and there's different ways that people want to participate in um, development and change. And so if you're the type of person who loves to give to charity and loves to watch your dollars work um, for those who are more vulnerable, I would encourage you to visit rebuildglobally.org and look at our Pathways to Impact. And it is a really awesome program, a monthly program that we love when people join because they get to be part of the solution to education and job training needs in Haiti. And if you are looking for some really awesome genuine leather or inner tube tire products for yourself or for Christmas gifts to visit Demain, which is D-E-U-X-M-A-I-N-S.com. And you can, you know, find these products and you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and um, just be a part of our story because we're all interconnected and we want to know you. We want to, anybody that's on this call, I want to know. So please reach out. 
Yeah, I love that. So let's give a damn family. You have a responsibility now to, you know, we ask a lot of you, let's give a damn family. You know, there's always amazing people on to help and collaborate with, but I want you to at least spend a moment asking yourself, is this something that I can contribute to? Whether it's, you know, just straight up giving money to the nonprofit side, Rebuild Globally, or if it's, I mean, I just looked at the products. There's purses, there's sandals, there's so many amazing products and they look great. You'll be happy to wear them both because they look great and because you're helping uh, amazing people have a sustainable life in Haiti um, and in so many other places. So go check that out, everyone. Julie, thank you so much for joining me today. This was an absolute pleasure and I hope we get to do it again soon. Oh, I'm honored. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for joining us today, friends. I'm absolutely thrilled you got to hear these conversations, and I hope you will figure out ways to begin spending your dollars purchasing from ethical and sustainable companies. That is, companies that want to make things well and want to give life to so many people in the developing world. As we approach the holiday season, please consider purchasing some of your Christmas gifts from Dume. They have amazing sandals, bags, and so much more. Visit their website at dume.com. That's D-E-U-X-M-A-I-N-S.com. That's D-E-U-X-M-A-I-N-S.com. And please continue supporting the work they're doing. You can follow Heidi at Heidi Lindgren on Instagram and Julie at Julie Colombino on Instagram as well. We will have all of this information in the show notes. Check out more of the show notes and other episodes at letsgiveadam.com. This show is made possible by your support on Patreon, by my producer and editor, Chad Snavely, and by our amazing guests. Thank you. And thanks for listening. Love you all. Bye for now. Oh, and happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.